This is a recording of Not Leaving and Going On to Perfection by Matthew L. Bowen, published in Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture, read by Sean Canney. A review of Samuel M. Brown's First Principles and Ordinances, the Fourth Article of Faith in Light of the Temple, Provo, Utah, Neil A. Maxwell Institute, 2014, 167 pages, Index. 1695. In his most recent book, First Principles and Ordinances, The Fourth Article of Faith in Light of the Temple, Hereafter First Principles, Samuel M. Brown observes that, quote, the plan of salvation is fundamentally about relationships, end quote. This recognition drove the prophet Joseph Smith and early church members to, quote, forge communities of saints that could endure beyond the veil of death, end quote. Today, the importance of the temple and its ordinances to family relationships, eternal in their design, are clear to most Latter-day Saints. However, our collective view of the meaning of the principles and ordinances that precede the temple and lead us to it is somewhat murkier. Brown demonstrates that what Latter-day Saints sometimes perfunctorily regard merely as, quote, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, end quote, Articles of Faith 1, 4, are every bit as much as the temple itself is about relationships. In fact, one cannot fully contextualize the temple and its ordinances unless one understands this aspect of the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. The Relationship of Relationships to Perfection One of the more gratifying aspects of reading Samuel Brown's excellent book has been its creating in me a deepening awareness of the enormous implications that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel have for our approach to individual relationships, especially marriage and family, but also friendships and community. Before I review the content of First Principles, however, I wish to share an insight regarding the relationship of relationships, and not leaving them, that this book has suggested to me. From the outset of my reading this book, Brown's loving and thorough but not exhaustive approach to the Gospel's First Principles and Ordinances called to mind Hebrews 6, 1-2, which states, quote, Therefore, leaving... The principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. End quote. The prophet Joseph Smith, in his inspired revision of the text of the King James Version of the Bible, the Joseph Smith translation, hereafter JST, changed the first part of 6.1 to read, quote, Therefore, not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. End quote. The verb rendered leaving by the King James Version translators, Greek, aphemi, can have a much stronger sense, for example, abandon. In fact, this word was used as a technical term for divorce. Compare Hebrew, azab, equals forsake, abandon, divorce. The emendation of leaving to not leaving reflects the prophet Joseph Smith's correct understanding that we, individually and collectively as a church, can never abandon or divorce the principles or beginning of the doctrine of Christ including the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, and still go on or advance unto perfection any more than a building can leave its foundation and go on or advance. If faith itself is, as Brown suggests, a kind of marriage, then it is not something that we can well divorce or abandon, but it is, quote, an active relationship that requires attention, effort, and, as Alma notes, nourishment. Alma 32.37. In other words, the journey to perfection is not merely one that sets out from the first principles and ordinances, but a journey that is attended by them, or really, a journey that attends unceasingly to them. Here it is worth noting that in the phrase, quote, let us go on unto perfection, end quote, 
we find one of the most important temple terms in the New Testament, teleosis. The adjectival form of this word, teleos, used by Jesus in Matthew, denotes perfect, full-grown, mature adult. And as pertaining to one who has received all the rites or ordinances initiated, that is, fully initiated. Jesus himself uses this term to describe the perfection of God the Father, to which his disciples were expected and even commanded to attain. Quote, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. End quote. Matthew 5.48 After his resurrection, Jesus would use a similar term to describe the perfection, or full ritual and experiential initiation, to which he himself had attained. Quote, Therefore I would that ye should be perfect even as I, or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. End quote. 3 Nephi 12.48 The word teleos, together with its cognate forms, serve as a lead word, a lead word, or guiding word, throughout the letter to the Hebrews. Not only is this a key term in Hebrews 6.1, as we have already seen, but just as importantly in Hebrews 11.40, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. When Joseph Smith revisited this verse later in life, after the harrowing experiences in Liberty Jail, he did so in the context of temple. The prophet adapted Hebrews 11:39 through 40 as a basis for the vicarious ordinance of the temple. Quote, and now, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. For their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation. As Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. Doctrine and Covenants 128.15 This is why not leaving rather than leaving makes for a more felicitous and doctrinally correct rendering of Hebrews 6.1. The impossibility of perfection without or apart from relationships. The prophet recognized that perfection, or full initiation, and the rites that lead thereto were inseparable from relationships. Moreover, he recognized that the rites or ordinances that lead to perfection, or full initiation into the kingdom of heaven, helped forge and made possible the sealing of family relationships. On this basis, the prophet then quoted 1 Corinthians 15.29, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? End quote. And Malachi 4.5-6. And then he continued thus, quote, I might have rendered a plainer translation of Malachi 4.5-6 to this, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands. It is sufficient to know, in this case, that the earth will be smitten with a curse unless there is a welding link of some kind or other between the fathers and the children upon some subject or other. And behold, what is that subject? It is the baptism for the dead. For we without them cannot be made perfect, neither can they without us be made perfect. Neither can they nor we be made perfect without those who have died in the gospel also. For it is necessary, in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories should take place, and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, but those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. End quote. Doctrine and Covenants 128.18 Regarding the prophet Joseph Smith's use of Hebrews 11.40, in the context of laying the foundation of the temple, see Doctrine and Covenants 128, Brown writes, quote, 
God is trying to save each of us as individuals, but he is simultaneously trying to save us into the heaven of family, to save us as interconnected groups of people who are connected to him and each other. End quote. From the beginning, the restored gospel has been about not leaving and yet advancing. As the prophet Joseph Smith articulated it on another occasion, quote, If a man or woman leaves the principles of the doctrine of Christ, how can he or she be saved in the principles? End quote. This, of course, has pragmatic implications for all Latter-day Saints. If one leaves the first principles and ordinances or the saints, how does one go on or advance unto perfection? What caused Lehi such exceeding fear when he received his dream slash vision of the tree of life was the distance or gulf between him and his sons, the prospect of severed relationships within his family and among his posterity. See First Nephi eight three through four and thirty five through thirty eight. This after partaking of the most sublime symbol of family and everlasting relationships the fruit of the tree of life. Nephi, reflecting on his and his father's shared vision of the tree of life, formulates the not-leaving-yet-advancing principle this way, quote, Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end. Behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. End quote. Second Nephi 31.20 In my reading of Nephi's words, steadfastness in Christ is reiterative faith in Christ and continual progressive repentance. The Hebrew word for faith, emuna, derives from the root mn, denotes to be firm, trustworthy, safe, that is, steadfastness, or reliability, not simply a one-time act of faith. See Habakkuk 2.4. Nephi may have had additional lexical associations in mind that correlate the virtues of hope and charity to the first principles and ordinances. Hope, Hebrew mikveh, or tikva, corresponds to baptism. If we remember the mikveh, collecting place, or mikvah, the collecting pool, reservoir, where ritual ablutions took place, and still take place, there possibly roots denoting to be taught, that is, be tight, controlled, and thus await, hope, and collect, compare Genesis 1.9, assemble, that is, as in holding together. We might make an additional comparison here between the grave and the font, i.e., quote, the place underneath where the living are wont to assemble, to show forth the living and the dead, Doctrine and Covenants 128.13. Described by the prophet Joseph Smith and Joseph F. Smith's description of the collecting place of paradise in the spirit world, quote, and there were gathered together in one place, an innumerable company of the spirits of the just, who had departed the mortal life, firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection through the grace of God the Father and his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, spirits who were assembled, awaiting the advent of the Son of God into the spirit world to declare their redemption from the bands of death. End quote. Doctrine and Covenants 138, 12-16 Compare also, quote, this vast multitude waited and conversed, verse 18. Moreover, to have, quote, a love of God and of all men, end quote, beyond a fulfillment of what Jesus later called the two great commandments, achieves a divine and interpersonal relationship ideal made possible only by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Compare First Nephi. 11.22, and Romans 5.5. 5. In any case, pressing forward in faith, hope, and charity 
is what Nephi meant when he exhorted Laman and Lemuel to hold fast to the rod of iron, slash, word of God. See 1 Nephi 15.24. That is the doctrine of Christ, as the righteous faithful who had pressed forward and successfully partaken of the fruit of the tree of life had done. See 1 Nephi 8.30. Thus, at a time in which some Latter-day Saints have allowed themselves to be pulled away from the doctrine of Christ, having let go of the rod of iron, Brown's focus on relationships, how the first principles and ordinances of the gospel impact our relationships, is timely, relevant, appropriate, welcome, and one of the best possible approaches to truly living the gospel of Jesus Christ and applying its principles. An Autobiographical Introduction Glimpses into Sam Brown's personal life, for example his relationship with his father, and experiences constitute some of the best parts of the book. He begins with a recollection of his encounter with church discipline as a youth. There is, of course, always risk in delving into one's past. Bringing up one's own or another's sins and transgressions frequently invites a spirit of negativity. I am grateful in this instance, however, for Brown's judicious candor in telling his personal story. He admits that during his late adolescence he became atheist and then agnostic, and that, quote, life was not on a good path and stood in need of a course correction, end quote. Subsequently, however, he, quote, came to faith on the verge of adulthood through a process of repentance and intense spiritual experience, end quote. The prospect of church discipline, disfellowshipment, as a young man, might have set the author's life on an entirely different trajectory had he allowed it. Instead, he decided not to leave. Brown's reminiscence of his feelings and experiences the night previous to the Sunday that marked his return to full fellowship and his blessing of the sacrament with his friend Tyler, quote, who had prayed countless times, end quote, on his behalf, are alone worth more than the price of this book. Words rarely do these kind of experiences justice. Brown, however, succeeds here and elsewhere. It was this encounter, or re-encounter, with the first principles and ordinances of the gospel that, according to the author, quote, launched him on a life of believing, end quote. On a very personal level, Brown's reminiscence of his youthful spiritual struggles and their resolution took me back to my own experiences as a spiritually struggling 15- to 18-year-old. Like Sam Brown, I was eventually able to resolve these struggles through the atonement of Jesus Christ. By returning to activity and thus to partaking of the sacrament, I returned to the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. I will never forget the personal revelation through the Holy Ghost that flowed into my life during that reformative and formative time, revelation that included one of the clearest and most unmistakable answers to prayer regarding potential mission service I have ever received. Through it all, Sam Brown has become and remains a, quote, practicing, believing, temple-going Latter-day Saint Christian who is sealed by temple ordinances to his family, a scientist, a spouse, a parent, a child, a physician, a believer, a starry-eyed wanderer, and a sometimes melancholy, remorseful human being who is struggling to make his way in a fallen world. End quote. The richness of Brown's book consists in his thoughtful use of all these very personal perspectives. I suspect that every Latter-day Saint shares at least one, and most likely several, of these descriptions and perspectives, and will thus find this book a rewarding read. Faith, Fidelity, Faithfulness As the first principle of the gospel, Brown recommends faith in Jesus Christ, quote, as a kind of marriage of our souls to the community of the saints, has the same character as marriage itself, end quote. Thus, quote, when vexed by a particular doctrine or cultural understanding, the practice of my faith is to acknowledge that tension or conflict or discomfort in my mind, and then place it into the balance of my entire relationship with the church. End quote. 
In severe cases, this of necessity will involve, quote, actually supplementing those negative experiences with many positive ones, end quote, just as, quote, paying extra attention to pleasure and kindness will help maintain the health of a stressed relationship, end quote. Brown's sage advice is similar to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's recent counsel, quote, When problems come and questions arise, do not start your quest for faith by saying how much you do not have, leading, as it were, with your unbelief. That is like trying to stuff a turkey through the beak. Let me be clear on this point. I am not asking you to pretend to faith you do not have. I am asking you to be true to the faith you do have. Sometimes, we act as if an honest declaration of doubt is a higher manifestation of moral courage than is an honest declaration of faith. It is not. Be as candid about your questions as you need to be. Life is full of them on one subject or another. But if you and your family want to be healed, don't let those questions stand in the way of faith working its miracle. End quote. We will have to exercise faith in Jesus Christ within our relationships, within the church, especially when those relationships become strained. Brown writes, quote, There will be times in our practice of faith when we disagree with or find our fellow saints disagreeable. Those downtimes will come as inevitably as they do in any relationship. In faith, we can balance those negative experiences with more positive experiences. At times, we may feel ourselves frustrated by political disagreements with other saints, or we may struggle with stressful relationships within our ward, or we may have difficulty making sense of events in church history or particular LDS teachings. Those are times to reach for the things we have loved about God, the church, and the community of the saints. End quote. In the most difficult times, we must never lose sight of the relationship aspects of our faith in Jesus Christ and the relationship nature of faith. I suspect that is one reason why the promise to always remember him follows closely on our witnessing to God, our eternal Father, kinship terminology, our willingness to take upon us the name of his Son, Doctrine and Covenants 20, 77, and 79, See also Moroni 4, 3, and 5, 2 in the Sacrament Prayers. Our membership in the Church of Jesus Christ is first and foremost about our relationship with Jesus Christ and our family relationships, but also about our relationship with our fellow saints. Having faith in Jesus Christ is to be faithful in these relationships. To those who murmur or gripe on any given Sunday, Oh no, not another lesson on faith. I have been tempted to respond, Until we have the faith to literally command the mountains, like the brother of Jared commanded Mount Zaron in Ether 1230, we don't know enough about faith or how to exercise it. The realization of this aspect of faith, what some might consider one of its more theoretical is one that few men or women attain in this life, though men and women move metaphorical mountains constantly through faith. And yet, as Brown demonstrates, there are marvelous, practical aspects to faith that we seldom think about. He writes, quote, Faith is just as necessary to love ourselves as it is to love other people. In faith, we can imagine that we are worth saving that we are divine human beings with a glorious future, end quote. Moreover, quote, faith isn't about the specific outcomes of a life. Faith is about a relationship with Christ. Through faith in Christ, we are able to imagine ourselves as Christ sees us, end quote. These aspects of faith we can never leave if we have any hope of salvation. Rather, they beg our continual practice unto perfection. An unrelenting practice of this kind of faith, imagining ourselves as not only worth saving, but divine by design, as Christ surely sees us, leads unavoidably to repentance. Compare Amulek's Faith unto Repentance, Alma 34, 15-17. See also Helaman 15, 7. 
Repentance, Atonement, Community Brown suggests that repentance is a word that, quote, should embrace a cloud of meanings, end quote. The Greek term, metanoia, as he notes, and as is widely known, denotes a changed mind or a change of mind. In Book of Mormon language, a mighty change of heart. Repentance is a, quote, change in the non-physical elements of a person, a change in identity made possible by Jesus, end quote. He additionally notes that our English word repentance, which comes to us by way of French, originally from Latin, penitere, denotes the regret or sorrow that should precede and precipitate the change implied in metanoia. Such a change of mind, repentance, quote, takes place within the context of Christ's atonement, end quote. That atonement, quote, represents our hopes for a better world against the disappointing reality we actually live, end quote. Understanding the nature of repentance and Christ's atonement can help us bridge the gap between the extreme forms of the doctrine of original sin and the notion that human beings have divine potential. We recognize that, quote, we are a mixture of the human and the divine, consciousness existing in the productive tension between aspiration and accomplishment. End quote. In fact, according to Brown, quote, in a very real sense, mortality is the adolescent phase of our immortal existence, a time for us to mature toward what we will one day become, a time when we exert our independence, make mistakes, puzzle through our relationship with our parents and our ancestors, and create new relationships with people who are not our blood kin, end quote. Since communities are a nexus of relationships, repentance and forgiveness are necessarily communal experiences and undertakings. Brown observes that, quote, our failings become most apparent in communities. In relationships, our minor foibles become intolerable, end quote. Thus, quote, we cannot really live or sin or repent all by ourselves. These actions happen within communities of other people, end quote. He cites examples of communal repentance like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Thanksgiving. For Latter-day Saints, the preparation for the Kirtland Temple dedication was such a time. He further suggests that President Gordon B. Hinckley led the saints in an expression of communal repentance in April 2006, when he denounced racism of any form in the church and mandated its elimination. To Brown's insights here, I would add that, like the holy festivals that occurred in the spring and autumn in ancient Israel, spring Pesach and the autumn trifecta of Sukkot, Feast of the Tabernacles, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, which were times of repentance and renewal, spring and fall general conference can and should always be times of renewal, times of personal as well as communal repentance and forgiveness. Like the ancient Israelite Sabbath, our sacrament meetings can be such experience for our ward families. All of us, collectively and individually, should be engaged in what Professor Hugh Nibley called perpetual progressive repentance. Brown's own view of repentance is deeply informed by experiences with his father and becoming reconciled to him through the atonement. Like faith, true repentance involves, quote, seeing with the eye of Christ, end quote, because such seeing, quote, requires that we overcome the natural biases of our own eyes, end quote. Come to recognize the sinners and saints paradox that, quote, we are all of us broken and all of us glorious, end quote. In other words, that, quote, we are glorious and we are fallen. We are imperfect mimics and we are the image of Christ, end quote. Faith helps us to see our divine potential as saints, while repentance, quote, grounded in relationships, end quote, helps us, quote, imagine the sinner as a close friend who happens to have made a mistake, end quote, while, quote, not confusing our distaste for sin with a right to judge another person, end quote. 
Such repentance can help us mend broken relationships with broken people, since we recognize that we in our own way share that brokenness. We are all imperfect, and that we and those with whom we must reconcile, such as a flawed parent, are, quote, deeply and permanently loved by Christ, end quote. Thus, quote, through faith and repentance, we move a few steps closer to a Zion society and the promise of a heaven on earth, end quote. Ordinances, the power of God is manifest. Brown's third chapter, quote, contains a transition between the principles of faith and repentance, remembering that these principles are actions as much as they are states of mind, and the ordinances of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, end quote. Here he insightfully observes that the struggle of many people to, quote, understand the significance and meaning of ordinances stems from unappreciated cultural changes that have separated us from our rich history of religious rituals, end quote. Ordinances often seem strange to people, especially those with a modern Western mindset. However, the Prophet Joseph Smith's use of the language of Obadiah 121 helps us to appreciate the communal nature of salvation as reflected in ordinances, quote, and saviors, Hebrew, Mosi, Im, shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's, end quote. Compare Doctrine and Covenants 103, 9 through 10. Another potential translation for Hebrew, Mosi, A, could be rescuer. The Latter-day Saints are or should be rescuers, rescuers of others, perhaps especially of the other and of each other. As Brown put it, quote, ordinances force us to rely on others, end quote. In other words, one cannot perform an ordinance on oneself. Thus, quote, we are saviors on Mount Zion for one another, end quote. As Latter-day Saints performing ordinances in the name of the Lord, and by his authority on one another binds us to each other, and performing ordinances for and on behalf of those who have preceded us in death transcends the veil and binds us to them in everlasting relationships. Far from being a theology of salvation by works, ordinances immerse us and keep us immersed in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quote, Ordinances are essential for our salvation, not merely in and of themselves, but as constant reminders that we cannot save ourselves. In this, ordinances always point to Christ. End quote. Moreover, ordinances are equalizers in the building of society that is supposed to become, quote, equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also, for the obtaining of heavenly things. End quote. Doctrine and Covenants 78.5 Regarding the equalizing force or effect of ordinances, Brown observes, quote, There is no separate temple endowment for the titans of industry, or the smartest or most righteous among us. In requiring that we all perform the same ordinances at some point in our lives, God sends the message that no one is better than anyone else where it matters in our capacity to be exalted, end quote. He continues, quote, Jesus taught that message of essential equality when he explained why it was that he, the greatest prophet and the Messiah, had to condescend to be baptized by a lesser prophet like John the Baptist. See Matthew three thirteen through 15, end quote. Brown's insights thus help us better appreciate the depths of meaning in Nephi's angelic guides question to the former in 1 Nephi 11.16, quote, Knowest thou the condescension of God? End quote. Christ condescended to be baptized. Moreover, he descended below all things in order to exalt even the least of these, his brothers and sisters. Baptism and the Hosts of Heaven In this chapter, Brown offers a brief history of baptism in its Judaic context. He recalls the tevila, or tevila, from the root tevil, dip, immerse, bathe, 
and the freshwater font called mikveh, in which full immersion ritual ablutions took place. The pre-Christian Greek use of the verb bapto, whence the noun baptism derives, originally referred to the sinking, that is, full immersion, of ships. As to the symbolism of baptism, Latter-day Saint children usually become familiar with the metaphor of washing clean first. Though this is a beautiful and useful metaphor, Brown notes that this symbol is, quote, very limited, end quote, and in fact, potentially limiting. Baptism is a metaphor of death and resurrection, of Christ's death and resurrection and of ours, is layered with rich symbolism. But perhaps most importantly, baptism is an adoption. Through baptism we are adopted, or reborn, as sons and daughters of Christ. We become members of Christ's family, the family of heaven. It reminds us that, quote, a relationship, the relationship between us and Christ, is our salvation, end quote. Earlier in his book, Brown remarks how, quote, in a way that few others understood, Joseph Smith taught that baptism was an ordinance for creating and sustaining relationships that could survive death, end quote. That is, as adoption into the heavenly family. Indeed, Alma, the elder's covenant speech at the waters of Mormon, see Mosiah 18, 8-10, reminds us that the baptismal covenant is about relationships, our relationship with God. Quote, Come into the fold of God and be called his people, end quote, verse 8. Quote, Stand as witnesses of God, end quote, verse 9. Quote, Redeemed of God, end quote, verse 9. Quote, Entering into a covenant to serve him and keep his commandments, end quote, verse 10. And our relationships with each other, belonging to a fold with others, verse 8, being, quote, willing to bear one another's burdens, quote, end quote, verse 8, being, quote, willing to mourn with those that mourn and to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, end quote, verse 9, being, quote, numbered with those of the first resurrection, end quote, verse 9. Insights gained from his study and practice of medicine are perhaps no better or more appropriately evident than in his description of the symbolism of the water into which we are baptized as a symbol of death and rebirth. Quote, water carries with it the specter of death. On the other hand, life in the desert makes clear how fragile life is without water. Just a day or so without access to water, and we begin to die a miserable death. Water, like baptism, contains opposites. Water also mediates between the worlds of the living and the dead, as we transition from life within our mothers to independent life in the outside world. We float in amniotic fluid, nourished through our navels by our mother's blood, and with a rush of water and maternal pain, we draw breath into our lungs changing ourselves from something like fish to something like human beings. Water marks transitions and changes its status. Immersion in water carries with it these ancient images and associations with life and death, with birth and passage, drowning and the quenching of thirst. Baptism by immersion fruitfully engages the cloud of meaning surrounding water and other sacred liquids. End quote. In spite of the frequency of the ordinance of water baptism in the church, these are symbols that we seldom, if ever, think about, but should. And yet, there is still much more to water baptism than the symbols of the water. Citing Romans 8, 14-17, Brown suggests that, quote, Baptism contains the power to create the family of heaven, end quote. The prophet Joseph Smith understood this, as is evident in Doctrine and Covenants 128, 12-13 where in clarifying the meaning of baptism for the dead, he clarified the meaning of baptism for the living, that is, quote, Baptism for the dead is the method by which we will form a chain of belonging in which we are bound together with those who have left mortality before us, end quote. The heavenly family, the church, existing on both sides of the veil, is thus linked together in relationships by eternal bonds through baptism and other vicarious ordinances. Nevertheless, 
Water baptism is only the first baptism that is primarily concerned about relationships. The Gift of the Holy Ghost The gift of the Holy Ghost and the ordinance of confirmation, whereby this gift is bestowed, are also fundamentally about relationships. As Brown suggests, quote, The Holy Ghost represents a kind of spiritual cement that binds us together, a cement made from us, our fellow saints, and the divine beings who care deeply about us, end quote. Brown begins this chapter by recalling, quote, the Mormon Pentecost of 1836, end quote, in Kirtland, with the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and the attendant theophanies, visions, and blessings, many of them shared, that bound these early saints together and prepared them for the European missions that would buttress the church in the face of the Kirtland banking crisis and for generations thereafter. Brown here attempts to, quote, expand our thinking, end quote, about the Holy Ghost in three specific ways. First, by showing how the Holy Ghost functions as the Spirit of God's Church. Second, by exploring the Holy Ghost as a, quote, window into the mystery of embodiment, end quote. And third, by demonstrating the strong, quote, communal implications, end quote, of our reception of the Holy Ghost through an ordinance. Brown traces the history of the terminology that stands behind the title Holy Ghost, holy with its notion of something set apart, and ghost as an image of breath or wind. Moreover, he notes that semantic range for both Greek pneuma and Hebrew rock or ruah that include wind or breath. Brown further observes, quote, For early Christians, the word pneuma represented a way to express at least two key concepts. First is the close association between our breath and our lives. To live is to breathe. To breathe is to live. At the moment when we die, a moment our ancestors knew all too well, our breath dissipates as our chest stills. It is natural to connect breath and the spark of life, not least because breathing is the activity that distinguishes a sleeping body from a corpse. Second is the image of the wind, something powerful that is visible only by its effects. Numa subsequently carried with it a sense of invisible efficacy. Wind cannot be seen directly, but its awesome effects are easily witnessed. The same is true of the power or influence of God. When we breathe, we draw into and expel from our bodies the wind that circulates around us. End quote. We might note in this vein that the Egyptian word sn, sn, sometimes rendered breathings, rather denotes fellowship. Understanding the gift of the Holy Ghost as, quote, interhuman connection, the Holy Ghost facilitates reaching across the boundaries that are imposed by embodiment, end quote. Thus, quote, in one way of thinking, the Holy Ghost also represents the spirit of Christ's church. We individual saints are the body of Christ, and a collective spirit that matches that collective body. End quote. If the Holy Ghost is the symbol par excellence of the spirit breath that gives life to Christ's church or body, the paramount symbol of the body, Christ's and ours, is the temple. Everything speaks of the temple. Too frequently, as Latter-day Saints, we forget that the first principles and ordinances are also temple ordinances. The temple, in a very real way, puts the first principles and ordinances into the proper context. For example, it was revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith that, quote, the baptismal font was instituted as a similitude of the grave, end quote, and as such, quote, was commanded to be in a place underneath, where the living are wont to assemble, to show forth the living and the dead, and that all things may have their likeness, and that they may accord one with another. End quote. Doctrine and Covenants 128.13 Confirmation, likewise, becomes a temple ordinance that prepares us for the endowment. Brown observes an important parallel between baptism and the endowment of which Latter-day Saints ought to become cognizant. Quote, In baptism, we pass from life to death, to new life with Christ, immersed in his water. 
In the temple we pass through the veil from life to death to new life with Christ, enfolded in divine love. In both baptism and endowment, we offer up our tiny wills and fragile agency through covenants that allow our wills to merge with Christ's. End quote. Indeed, the temple constitutes, quote, an entire method for understanding the gospel and our relationships to each other, end quote. And yet, as Brown also notes, quote, the forms and symbols of the temple differ starkly from the ways we have tended to see the principles and ordinances of the gospel. So our prior understanding, after we receive the additional ordinances of the temple, may require revision, end quote. Brown admits to feeling, like David O. McKay and many other Latter-day Saints, disoriented on his first encounter with the temple. He notes that, quote, unfortunately, some people even find the temple so disconcerting that they withdraw from the fellowship of the saints, end quote, since going on unto perfection, according to Joseph Smith's translation, Hebrews 6, 1, requires not leaving Much more must be done by the Latter-day Saints collectively and individually to solve this problem. In this vein, Brown recommends that, quote, we as a community could better prepare people for the temple experience, but we as individuals could also stand to be more resilient, end quote. We can, in fact, quote, improve our relationship with the temple, end quote, by recognizing that, quote, the theology and ordinances of the temple do at least three things. First, the temple liturgy consists of sacraments, ordinances, saving rituals. Second, the temple is a vessel for doctrine. Third, the temple clarifies our relationships with each other and with Christ, end quote. There are clear affinities between baptisms and confirmations and initiatory washing and anointings that require little elucidation. However, beyond baptism as, quote, a pledge of adoption and permanent connection, end quote, washings offer as anciently, quote, a way to prepare for specific types of encounters with the divine, end quote. The anointings that follow the washings evoke royal, and priestly anointing in ancient Israel and elsewhere. Both washings and anointings have their antecedents in the Hebrew Bible and early Christian rites. Brown notes that what we refer to as the endowment grew from the earliest washings and anointings at Kirtland in the School of the Prophets, and the endowment of power, that is, the reception of spiritual power, quote, into something even greater End quote. with the building of the Kirtland Temple and into something still greater at Nauvoo. Describing the Nauvoo Endowment in general terms, Brown concludes that, quote, Endowment is and has always been a story about relationships. Relationships are the solution to death, the bedrock of the gospel. End quote. Nothing, of course, is more pertinent to relationships in the restored gospel and in temple worship than the temple's sealing ordinance. In his sixth chapter, Brown offers a helpful overview of the ancient practice of using seals to mark cherished possessions as one's own, a secular practice that serves as a useful type of an eternal reality ritualized in the temple. Much of ancient atonement language is drawn from the language of commerce, and yet it describes aspects of transcendent, supernal, and eternal reality that is the atonement of Jesus Christ. A crucial point is that, quote, the temple sealing acts as the seal of Christ. It marks us as belonging to him. His seal acts as a kind of birth certificate for us, end quote. This, interestingly, is the fundamental point of King Benjamin's speech at the Zarahemla temple, with its concluding remarks on sealing, quote, that Christ the Lord God Omnipotent may seal you His, end quote. Mosiah 5, 15. Brown, in words that echo and articulate my own deep feelings of gratitude, acknowledges the debt that Latter-day Saints owe Hugh Nibley for calling our attention to the relational and representational nature of the temple to the cosmos. Quote, I'm grateful to Hugh Nibley 
for reminding us as Latter-day Saints that temples have long served as maps of the cosmos. This was true in ancient Mesopotamia, and it is true for us as Latter-day Saints. When we worship in the temple, we are locating ourselves in the universe, in the interlocking networks of particles, people, and planets. The ancients understood those maps in terms of the concept of the great chain of being and the metaphysical law of correspondence. There were clues to the meaning of the universe in many little things, the human body, human society, scriptures, and temple, end quote. It is in this cosmic setting of the temple that sitting together, quote, we pledge that we love each other as ourselves, end quote. Indeed, even to love each other as God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ love us. Moreover, in this setting, quote, we promise the universe that when we are asked, we will see the royalty in each other. We promise God and Christ that we will carry their atonement, the limitless promise of divine reconciliation from them to other human beings as secondary saviors on Mount Zion, end quote. Not only is our participation in this atoning work the meaning of the temple, in a very real sense, this is the meaning of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, including and perhaps especially its first principles and ordinances. Conclusion Brown's stated aim for his book was to, quote, allow the various facets of his personality and experience to inform each other in order to cultivate an attitude of wonder in the face of the familiar and deceptively simple principles of the fourth article of faith, end quote. In this aim, I think he succeeds most brilliantly. Moreover, he succeeds in showing that the simple principles and ordinances of the gospel are endlessly rich in their meaning. For some reasons, and for all of the others cited throughout this review, I wholeheartedly recommend Sam Brown's First Principles as a study and a resource that will benefit every Latter-day Saint from those in their early teenage years to those of advanced years. I cannot imagine any young adult or adult in or even out of the church that would not learn much from this book. It has forever changed my view of the relational nature of the gospel in all its facets. If a mortal lifetime of studying the first principles and ordinances of the gospel will not yield an adequate, let alone perfect, understanding of them, our work as Latter-day Saints is cut out for us not only here, but hereafter. Brown's book certainly helps that cause. Recalling the language of Joseph Smith translation Hebrews 6.3, eternal perfection is ever our goal. Quote, and we will go on unto perfection, if God permit. End quote. However, we must do so, not forsaking the Savior. The first principles and ordinances, Joseph Smith translation Hebrews 6.1, of his gospel, the temple, or each other. Salvation, after all, consists of and in relationships. This is the one truth of many that we should contemplate when we partake of the sacrament in remembrance of the Savior and His suffering. Matthew L. Bowen was raised in Orem, Utah, and graduated from Brigham Young University. He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and is currently an assistant professor in religious education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He and his wife, the former Suzanne Blattberg, are the parents of three children, Zechariah, Nathan, and Adele. 